0: This morning, we're going to be talking about how do you face an uncertain tomorrow. If you want to go ahead and open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3, okay? Exodus chapter 3, and uh, there you go, I'm sorry, there we go. Exodus chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 13 through 15 this morning. Would you agree that we face an uncertain tomorrow, yes or no? Yes. Thank you, Daniel. By the way, thank you guys so much. I appreciate that very much. Didn't they do a great job? Thank you. And the choir did a great job. Thank you, guys. I appreciate that a great deal. We're going to, I want us to take a close look at this passage this morning. Last week, I, I, I preached on Joshua, and, and we talked about just the, the whole thing of, of vision, of, of, of having, a, a, you know, of understanding and having faith in God and trusting Him and what it is. Well, basically, all of what happened with Joshua started here because Moses mentored Joshua. Moses mentored Joshua and taught him, you know, how to lead. It was Joshua who followed Moses, obviously, we know that. So it was, you know, Moses didn't get to go into the promised land, but Joshua did. So this morning, I want to kind of backtrack a little bit and and share with you how do we face an uncertain tomorrow. If you will, let's read Exodus 3, verse 13 to 15. It says, Then Moses said to God, Indeed... When I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent to me, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am, have sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob have sent me to you. This is my memorial. This is my name, my memorial. My name, and this is my memorial for all generations, including us. This is his word spoken then, but spoken to us as future generations. So what is he saying to us here? Before we do that, let's talk about what it means to face an uncertain tomorrow. I mean, look what we've seen just the last week in in our news. You know, we've seen some of the worst. I I saw a map uh, this week on on the news of, of all the the, the terrorist events have happened just over the last three or four months. And it literally almost filled up the map. I mean, Come think about it, guys. Is it safe to go to work? Is it safe to go to work? I mean, look at, you know, if you've been to New York, and we all remember where we were on 9-11. But if you've been to New York, and you've seen where the Twin Towers fell, and it reminds us that 3,000 people lost their lives on that day. Going to work, almost every day it seems like someone... Some of the terrorist events in California and others have killed people at work. Someone gets upset because they get fired and they go in and they start shooting people. You know, and is it safe to go to work? Is it safe to go to school? Because I remember when I was, I, uh, several years ago when Columbine happened. At that time, we only had one school shooting in the United States. And it happened in, in uh, if I remember correctly, in Arkansas, in Jonesboro, Arkansas. That was the first one. The second one was, was Columbine, and I remember what happened at Columbine. Do you remember that day when, when you watched the news and thought in shock, how's this happening in a school? I was in Nashville preaching a, a series of, of meetings for a church there, and my, my mom, my, my wife both called me and said, David, you need to turn the TV on and check this out. And I watched with horror as these, pe- these students were jumping out buildings and breaking their legs trying to get away from the gunmen. One of my friends, Bill Fay. I'll see him this this week. Bill wrote, "Share Jesus without fear." Bill was the chaplain for the police department in that area. Bill got to go into the to the uh, school after all that happened, and Bill said, "David, you're, they're lucky. Hundreds of kids weren't killed. They had set bombs all over the place, but yet because something interrupted them, and, and, and that didn't happen. Many more lives could have been lost. Is it safe to go to school?" Come on, guys, we've seen shootings at Virginia Tech, Northern Illinois University, the Amish School in New York. I could go on and on and on. it safe to go to church. Debbie and I had just moved back to Fort Worth, Texas in 1999 when I went on staff at Southwestern Seminary. And she came and got me out of a Wednesday night service to say simply, David, you need to see what's going on here. And, and I, I watched with horror. As there was, is is what happened at Wedgewood Baptist Church. And I, one of my friends, Kevin, Kevin Gailey, Kevin was uh, in the doctoral program with me, and Kevin was one of the one of the people that got shot that night. He's still staff at Wedgwood Baptist Church. He's their staff counselor, and uh, Kevin told me what happened. He said the guy comes to the back to the front door of the church, and and they're having a a, a meeting that night for see at the pole, and they'd invited all these people to come be a part of this. And he says this, this guy just shows up and, and he's smoking a cigarette. He walks in, the custodian meets him. He was one of our students at Southwestern. He told him, he says, sir, we don't allow smoking in the church. Could you please go put that out? He said, the guy very nicely went outside, put the cigarette out, walked right back in and pulled a gun out and shot the custodian. He fell to the ground. He, he had to, it, it so stunned his spinal column, hit right near it. He had to learn to walk in. It took him months then the guy turns to the right, and to the right of him was a young woman who was this guy's girlfriend, and she was the children's minister of the church. He turned and, and looked and shot her, and according to what Kevin said, the guy walks over and shoots her again to make sure she's dead, walks right past this custodian. That's when Kevin came running down the hall because you heard all the noise. He shot him. Almost the same thing happened to him. When I saw Kevin, it was about two or three months after the shooting, and he was still on crutches because it so stunned, his muscular system, his spinal column, and all that took place there, and he just destroyed so much. And the guy goes into the church, and having already shot three people, killed one. Goes in the church, and he walks down there having a worship service for a at the pole. Walks down the front, talks to someone. They tell him, hey, look, come see us after the church. We'll talk to you. The guy walks back, because they had all this on the video, he walks back and he takes his gun and beats it on the door. He turns around. The first thing he does is shoot the guy taking the video because he, he sees him wheel the gun around. He starts running down, waving his hands, and he shoots him. By the time they got to him, he had bled to death. He turns in the crowd. He shoots a young lady by the name of Kim Jones. I interviewed her the week before. She had just come off the mission field. Kim was, 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 was saved, come to Christ in a Baptist collegiate ministry at Texas Christian University. She'd just come from Eastern Europe where she'd served for two years as a journeyman with IMB. Her mom came to seminary a month later, had a video of the last Bible study she taught coming off the mission field. It was, it was almost prophetic what she had to say. Listen to this. She was teaching on, on God being sufficient and, and trusting the Lord. Kind of what I taught last week. It said she was using a passage for Paul, and what she she loved to hike, so she brought up a, a backpack and she was pulling stuff out of the backpack and talking about how that, how you know, you need this for this and this for this and this for this. And you got to be prepared and you got to do this and that. And when she got to the end, the backpack was empty. She turned it upside down and she dropped it. And she simply said to them, there's one more thing I need to tell you. She said, if you're going to live the Christian life, the days to come, you're going to have to realize that you may end up dying for the privilege to do that. Oh, she was so true, wasn't she? Christians were slaughtered on Easter morning this year in the Middle East just for practicing their faith. Happens all over the world every day in China, all over the world. Let me tell you something. It's it's going to happen here. It's going to happen here. Trust me. We're going to see it here. Sadly. Her mom Just looked out at the crowd and just wept. She didn't know that after she preached that, that a month or two later, that's exactly what would happen to her. The guy pointed in the crowd and shot a young lady named Cassie. She was 14 years old. She fell over to her 14-year-old best friend's lap. That girl's dad was one of my best friends on campus, and he told me what happened. He said, my little girl held on to her best friend while she was bleeding to death. And looked behind and the gunman shot at her two or three times and while she was watching he shot himself and killed himself When that evening was over seven people lost their lives thousands of others including me their lives would never be the same is it safe to go to work is it safe to go to school is it safe to go to church come on guys do we face an uncertain tomorrow yes or no so how do we face that uncertain tomorrow moses gives us a great example of that here he goes out one day and he's, this is, he's taking care of his livestock and he's, you know, he's 40 years out from when he killed the Egyptian guard and he's taking care of his, his father-in-law's, all he has and he sees a bush burning, he goes over and he lays down in front of it because he hears God's voice from it. God begins to speak to him. You know the story, you heard this in Vacation Bible School when you were a kid. And God said, said to Moses, he said, Moses you know, uh, uh, he began to speak to him. and says, I'm going to deliver the children of Israel out of bondage in Egypt. I'm going to do this. And Moses' heart had to jump out of his chest because hallelujah, this is finally going to happen. And then he said something that just rocked Moses' world. He said, and I have prepared you, Moses, to do it. You're going to go back and you're going to be the one that's going to deal with Pharaoh. You're going to do it. And what did Moses say? He said, who am I that I, I should do this, Lord? Who am I? And what did God say? He said, don't fear, Moses, don't worry. For I what? I will abandon you. I will let you ride in the wilderness. Is that what he said? No, he said, I, Moses, don't worry, Moses, I, God, will be with you. It's the same thing we heard in Joshua 1. When Joshua was, was we talked about this last week, when Joshua was all... Just upset because Moses was dead. And here he was taking the children of Israel into the promised land. And God said, don't fear Joshua, for as I was with Moses, so shall I be with you. Everywhere your foot shall try, that place shall be yours. It's exactly what Jesus said when he sent out his disciples. He said, don't worry, for I, I will be with you. I will never leave you, nor what? Forsake you. He promised us he would be with us. And then we get to the second excuse. Moses simply says, God, when I come before you, before the children of Israel, and they ask me what name, who you are, who sent me, what name shall I use in reference to you? Guys, that's an interesting statement, isn't it? What name shall I use in reference to you? See, we don't think names are a big deal, do we? Come on, we don't. My grandmother, for instance, she was a twin. If you know I'm from Tennessee, she was a twin. I mean, in and... and out in the country, man, outside of Cookville, Gainesboro, Tennessee. Her name was Lassie Laurel. Uh, her sister's name was Lassie Roselle. <laughs> That's country like grits and gravy, isn't it? But you know what I mean? That's it, man. I'm telling you. Come on, how many of you here are named after a, a family member, ancestor, who you probably didn't want that name? You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Any Henrietta's, Poindexter's out there, you know, Methuselah's, you know, I'm, you know what I mean. You know what I mean, Guys. I mean, come on, you see people all the time, their middle name. They'll say, well, what does that A stand for? You're never going to know. <laughs> and if you do, I'm going to shoot you for it. Just, uh, that's right. The only way you're ever going to know my middle name is that's going to... I mean, guys, come on. I knew some twins, by the way. <laughs> this is truly, I promise you. I knew some twins in junior high. Now, I kid you not. Now, get this. Their names were Fred and Freddie. <laughs> That's a mama who didn't have a clue she was having twins, you know, I mean, can you imagine what it was like in the birthday room, she gives birth to the first one, what are you going to name him, uh, Fred, okay, yeah, hey, there's another one coming, what are you, what are you going to name him, well, how about Freddy, <laughs> don't do that, man, it's like George Foreman naming all his kids George, you know, I mean, don't, don't do that, all right, well, guys, names don't mean a lot to us, but they meant a lot in biblical days. The name Isaiah, for instance, means salvation of Yahweh, salvation of God. The name Isaiah, get this, defined the message of Isaiah, which defined the ministry of Isaiah, which defined the man Isaiah. So what was he really doing? He was asking God, he was saying, God, when I come before the children of Israel, how are they going to know that you can deliver? And so what did God do? He stamped it. And it, it, Right here it says, tell them that I am who sent you to, me to you. Which, by the way, backs up the Trinity because here's God the Father the New Testament. Jesus Christ is God The you know, is, is I am, you know, uh, uh, I mean, he created, created all things. We see Jesus Christ as I am in the New Testament. I'm the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Those kind of things. But, but here, what he does is he uses four, word, four letters, four consonants, Y-H-W-H. Y-H-W-H. Now, how do we pronounce that, by the way? Yahweh. You know how they got to that, by the way, they took the... The vows of Adonai for Lord, and they took, they transliterated the Yahweh, you know, the the Y-H-W-H, and they put them together, and that's what it made because they did not want to speak the name of God. It was too holy. So we use the name Yahweh. Yahweh. Now I want you to think about this. What does the name Yahweh mean? I want you to, if you have something to write on there, if you can take a note, I want you to remember this. Don't ever forget this. You can always face an uncertain tomorrow if you'll remember the very name of who he is and what it means. And it goes back to this. He tells him, he says, tell them the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have sent me to you. Now what's he talking about there? He's telling him that because what he wants them to do is this. He wants them to, to remember, to look back and see how he delivered. He knew they would recognize those names. Why would he tell them to look back? Because we as Westerners, get this, we look at the future in a different way than the Jews did. We are trained to look at the future by marching into the future and forgetting the past. Come on, how many of us made the same mistake twice this morning before we left the house? You know what I'm talking about. We do that all the time. We think we can always do it better than the last guy, right? Well, the Jews were trained differently. The Jews were trained to put their back to the future and look to the past. You see, they didn't know what tomorrow would bring, but they knew the one who brought them. You see, we don't know what tomorrow would bring, but according to what the Scripture teaches, faith is a substance, things for, evidence of things, what? Not seen. So we're going to trust that God's going to provide the rocks, the the solid footing for us tomorrow when we step into this tomorrow that's unknown. Do we trust him for that? So, So what did God do to prove this to Moses? He stamped his name on it. And what does it mean? It means I will always be tomorrow what I've been yesterday. You go, wow, whoopee. It is a big deal. Because what he's saying here is this. He's saying, guys, that God transcends all of this. Tomorrow you may wake up, you may lose your job, who knows what will happen. Tomorrow or this week you may have a doctor tell you you have cancer. You think, how am I going to handle this? I promise you, when you get to that place, you will be able to handle it. Because of the promise of God, our God is already there. Count on it. He's already there. That's his nature, that's who he is. He signed it. Now, how do I know that? How do I know that myself? You know, how do I know this for sure? Well, it kind of goes back to what happened to me in 1989. This is a transformational thing of, with, with Debbie and I. Basically, what happened was, is, was Debbie and I um, I just accepted the call to go to a new church. And it was a week before Thanksgiving in 1989. And Debbie wasn't feeling well. She was about six months pregnant, six, six and a half months pregnant with our youngest daughter. And she wasn't feeling good Friday night, so I took her to the emergency care unit. They sent her back. I took her to the hospital on Saturday. They sent her back home. I had to go that Saturday night for a Thanksgiving meal with our church. And I spent the night there with my oldest daughter, Dana. She was two and a half. And that Sunday, I called Debbie. I said, are you okay? And she, she was fine. She was fine. And I kept calling her throughout the day and she said she was fine. When I walked in our apartment that night, what I found forever changed our life. You gotta understand, I was 28 years old at the time. I've been with Debbie half my life. I went on my first date with with Debbie when I was 14 years old. It's true. I was sitting in science class. I've been in school with her all these years. It was one of those those times, you know, when I, I looked across class and I saw this brunette girl. And I looked at her and I thought, that's the first thing I've ever seen, more pretty than a football. <laughs> and I couldn't take my eyes off of her. So I went home that night. It was Monday night. In our house, we always watch Monday night football. And so I'm sitting there with my dad. My dad was an old country boy from East Tennessee. And, and so I was sitting there, and watching my, we're watching Monday night football, and go, hey, dad. And he goes, yeah, boy, what's up? I said, hey, dad, there's this real pretty girl in our class. I said, great, David, great. I said, Dad, would, would, if I can get her to go to the football game with me Friday night, would you pay away and take us? Because you got to know that if you don't have any money or wheels, you're not going anywhere, okay? And my dad looked at me, at 14, I'm 14 years old. My dad looked at me, he laughed so hard. He kind of rolled off the couch. And he was kind of a big guy, so he kind of bounced a little bit, you know. And he looked at me, and as if he this is, I probably this is word for word what my dad said. He said, Son, if you can find a woman that dumb, that blind, and that desperate, sure, I'll take you. <laughs> Any hey, of you, hey, you out here had that dad? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. That's it. I mean, he felt like his job was to build up the self image of his children. You know what I mean? <laughs> he was messing with me. You know, but you know what? I, and I'll tell you another story with her later on. But basically, we dated for about a month, and then we broke up. We started dating again in high school. And seven years later, I married her. I married her. She was the first person I ever led to Christ. I'll tell you that story sometime later. I married her. So I walked in our apartment that night. Half our life was wrapped up in each other. Half our life. I found Debbie bent over a trash can, coughing up blood. The doctors, I got her to the hospital soon as I could. They put her, into, put her into kind of a mid-level ICU unit where I keep an uh, eye on her. Monday went by, Tuesday went by. Wednesday morning they went into her pro- lungs with a probe to try to figure out where the bleeding was coming from. Doctor met me outside and said, Mr. Wheeler, we don't have a clue. He was a Christian man. He was a deacon at a local Baptist church. He said, I can tell you two facts right now for sure. Number one, if she doesn't stop bleeding soon, she's going to miscarry that baby and the baby's going to die. And secondly, she'll die shortly after that. God's a control freak. I mean, I was a control freak. I thought it was all in my control, that kind of thing. You know, I, I, my whole ministry and everything had been about me. I, I, I wasn't a very nice person and all that kind of stuff. I wasn't the husband I needed to be. I sure wasn't the dad I needed to be. I wasn't the man I needed to be. And God knew that. When Debbie got, when that happened to her, I, when he told me that, something in my, my heart just sunk. And for the first time in my life, I can ever remember without being physically injured. I started to cry. I went over and I did what every self respected man in this place would do. I picked up the phone and I called my mama. She hopped on the next plane and flew out to Texas. Stay with me for the next three weeks. Thursday was Thanksgiving. They put Debbie in a full ICU unit. She was bleeding worse. Friday went by. Saturday morning, they allowed me to take my two and a half year old daughter in to see her mama before I took her to the uh, um, before I would take her to the uh, uh, airport to fly out. And so I I took her, I took her to, I'll never forget this. I took her in there and they had Debbie, Debbie sitting up in a chair and she was wheezing like this, just up and down. And, and when Dana saw that, she began to run across the room wanting to fix her mom and help her mom, screaming mommy, mommy, and I had to drag her out of there. When I left, Debbie was crying, I was crying, the nurses were crying. She didn't calm down, I got her down the lobby and I took her, to, drove her to the airport. And when I got to the airport, I took her to the gate. In those days they'd let us do that. Took her to the gate, and they let me hold on to her to the last moment. I'll never forget when the lady walked out and said, "Miss Tweel, you're going to have to let her go. And Debbie's dad and stepmom were there, and they took her, and Dana walked down that little ramp to meet them. She turned around about halfway down and looked at me as if to say, Daddy, why are you abandoning me? I'll never forget this, guys. Dana still remembers it. She remembers exactly what happened to her. And I, as soon as that Dana turned that corner, I walked out to the car. Turn on, the, turn on the car, and there was a Wayne Watson song, an old Wayne Watson song, talking about your children grow up and play in the front yard and wonder who they would marry one day. And I began to think about that little girl i just put on the plane. And then the closer I got to Fort Worth, I started thinking about that little baby that was yet to be born. When I got back, the doctor said, Debbie's so so worn out, so tired, we're going to have to put her into a chemically induced coma. I remember holding on to her hand while they intubated her. And guys, I had grown so... Much, I was so consumed with myself, I didn't you know, know, know how to tell the one person I love more than the, anything in the world, anything, and I just sat there and held her hand while they intubated her and filled her full of morphine. See, when you live your life only for you and that's all you think about, regret becomes a part of your, your meal. It's what you eat. It's, what, it's, it's your payoff, unfortunately. It's what we get for, for not treating others the way we should. They filled Debbie full of morphine that, Sunday, that Saturday night. Sunday went by, Monday went by, Tuesday her kidneys started to fail, started to bleed. Wednesday we had an ice storm. My, my mom and I and Debbie's mom snuck out, went to somewhere to eat. When I got back about 7 o'clock, they met me at the door. The nurse said, the doctor's been looking for you, David, they, they want to talk to you. They, they want to, they, they need to see you right now. I went in Debbie's room. I remember I had my blue jacket on. I'm standing in the room. The only light in the room was the, was the light right behind her bed. The only movement was her chest going up and down. The only sound was the respirator. And I put my hands on her hands, and they were cold and kind of stiff. And I started just telling her how much I loved her and pleading with her and just telling her. She couldn't hear a word I, I said. The doctor walked in a few minutes later. He said, Mr. Weaver, we know what your wife has. We've got to move quickly. She has what's called Wegener's disease. It's an autoimmune disease, similar to like lupus attacks her major organs. He said, Mr. Wheeler, we're going to have to give her a massive dose of chemotherapy. He said, I've got a mixing it right now. You'll have to sign for that because we don't know what that will do with your baby. I remember walking out in the hall and I broke down and started crying again. The nurses gathered around me and I walked over and I signed that sheet of paper. And I felt the Lord say back to me, don't, don't worry, don't fear, for I will always be with you. I will always be what I've been. That passage became our theme for the last 26 years. To trust God no matter what circumstances. To walk through whatever it takes. They started giving Debbie that morphine that night. I stayed with her. The morphine, the, the, the chemo that night. and I stayed with her about 3 o'clock in the morning. Debbie's mom came and drugged me away. And I got a couple hours sleep. Thursday I came back. Started crying midday and I couldn't stop. I went home at night and locked myself in the back room of my apartment. And I challenged all of us to have that moment too. Because I laid down before the Lord and I laid everything I ha- had out before God, my arrogance, my pride, all of it. And I prayed and wept over my wife and my kids. I surrendered everything within me. And I just laid there for hours. Guys, if you could have me in that carpet, that's how low I felt. And then all of a sudden, Right in the middle of that, it was like I was falling off a building. These big hands reached out and picked me up. And God filled that room with his presence like I've never felt in my life. It was like I wanted to grab hold of something. It's like God was saying, David, stop trying to grab hold of this world. Trust me. Keep your eyes on me. Walk with me. I'm what you need. I took my hands off, and it was the most amazing sense of peace ever. The next day, I walked in the hospital. David We thought things would get better and it got worse. Debbie contracted a blood clot that was was headed to her lungs that was in her leg and they had to go into emergency surgery on her to put a filter in. And Guys, they gave her less than 25% chance of coming back out of surgery. Anesthesiologist said, Mr. Wheeler, she's the most unstable patient I've ever worked on. She could easily be gone soon. She could be gone tonight. An hour and a half after she went into surgery, she was back in that room. Guys, we found out that friends of ours, called friends, called friends. Guys, I've shared our testimony all over the United States. I was in, had a guy from, a lady from Florida a while back who told me, she said, you know what? You don't know it, but we prayed for you. I was in North Carolina, in to North Carolina. A lady walked up to me after service. She's about 70 years old. She said, Mr. Wheeler, you don't know me, but I know you. She said, I got a prayer ministry. She said, I keep a, a, a list of all the things I pray for in this little booklet. And she said, I want you to know, I can go back and look at the very time you're talking about and where God laid on my heart to pray for a young woman who was very ill, who was pregnant, and God confirmed tonight that was your, your wife. Because I've had people tell me, God's, God's ways are not our ways. Thousands of people were, were just called to pray for her. The next day, I walked back in the hospital and, and go out to eat lunch and get back after lunch. and It was about 1 o'clock, and we get called down to respiratory care, Debbie Debbie was, we didn't know what was happening. I ran into her room, and Debbie's mom was outside just weeping and just scared to death. There were about 20 people around her. Nobody would tell me what was going on. I remember standing outside that room, standing against that wall, and God taking me back, saying, don't fear, for I will always be what I have been. I kid you not, that's exactly what was on my mind. A few minutes later, Debbie's mom stood on one side, my mom stood on the other we didn't know it that 30 minutes before this, there was a nurse who was assigned to Debbie that day. It was her first day in respiratory care. She was the only one who had any neonatal experience. God put her there. They checked Debbie. They checked her. Her, her they were. She had an infection, so they were going to going to with a catheter. So they were going to do something else and put it on a bedpan. They went to pull out a catheter. When they did, her mucus plug came out, and and all of a sudden. This this lady, she runs out and says, this is exactly what she told us." She said, I I told them to call the neonatal care people. When I went back in the room, Debbie had miscarried our little baby in that bedpan. We stood there out in the hall. This is, uh, go ahead and click that for us, guys, if you will. Go ahead and move that. Go ahead and bring the picture up. There we go. That was her. She weighed a pound and 15 ounces. She was 14 inches long. That's my mom holding a dollar bill over the top of her. That was that little girl that sat over here with you guys last week, Mary. Kara's an amazing kid. Doctors told us not to expect much from her. I mean, she didn't walk till She's four and a half years old. She has mild cerebral palsy. She had seizures so bad when she was growing up that she would stop breathing at times. She was an amazing kid. She went to kindergarten twice only because the teachers wouldn't adapt to what, she, what they were needing and all this kind of stuff. And doctors kept telling us, don't expect too much, don't expect too much. She's, if she, she may graduate from high school and she may not. She not only graduated from high school, she graduated from Brookville High School over here with, in the National Honor Society. She graduated from Liberty University in 2013. This amazing kid this was Kara go ahead and click the next one up if you will Bring in. this was Kara when she was 7 years old she just got her leg braces off and she said I want to be just like my sister so we got her involved in the softball league Dana pitched for Liberty and coached and did all this kind of stuff she loved softball and Kara wanted to be like her so we got her in a softball league where they threw the ball from 35 feet away and I'll never forget this Kara had not had a hit all year all year Four games in, she'd not had a hit. I'm taking her to the game. She's sitting in the back seat. I can see her in my mirror. I said, Kara, don't you think it's time you get a hit? She's like, she didn't know. She played right field. She couldn't throw the ball from me to you. She didn't care. As long as she got a popsicle after the game, it didn't matter to her. She looked at me, and she, she said, okay, Daddy. And I said, honey, if you get a hit tonight, I'll take you to Toys R Us and buy you anything you want. Her eyes got really big. About the fourth inning, I am not making this up. I'm not kidding you. That coach pitched that ball, and I know the Holy Spirit must have grabbed hold of the ball in the bat at the same time because somehow they hit. And and the ball chinked down the third baseline and stayed fair. And Kara runs to first base and gets on top of first base like this, and both sides of the stands go crazy. They're running down the field. They're they're going nuts. The whole part's going nuts. And she's standing on first base like a rock star. I walk over there to her, I picture her up, I said, oh, honey, I'm so proud of you. She said, Daddy, when do we go to Toys R Us? <laughs> Amazing kid. Like I said, she graduated from Liberty in 2013. They told us that, by the way, take that back for those last three things, if you will. They told us that, uh, that uh, Debbie would probably not live more than two years, 1990. Well, she was alive and well here last week. She's had five joint replacements, three of them in the last four years. She's an amazing kid. She's an amazing lady. You know what's funny about about Debbie? Let me just share this with you. She keeps me in the moment. I tend to always be looking for what's coming and miss the moment. Debbie's always reminding me, what if today's the last day? What's the moment? What's happening there? Come on, look at the, your family, look at them next to you. Look how blessed you are as a church. Because I'll never forget when Debbie was about, I mean, when, when i never forget this, when, when Debbie was teaching the third grade nursery for Vacation Bible School. And from Mon- Sunday, I mean, from Monday to Wednesday, they doubled and had to start a second class. Wednesday night, well, actually Thursday morning about 3 o'clock, she wakes me up and her nose is bleeding. I have to carry her in the bathroom and carry her back out of the bathroom. She had a relapse. She had been in the hospital about a month before that. The next morning, they put her in the, she she walked into her nursery class. I'm not kidding you. At 8 o'clock, sat in the middle of that floor, and you would have never known she was sick. She'd complain one bit. I walked across the church, and I was almost attacked by a half a dozen people. Pastor, there's no paper towels in the bathroom. Pastor, these kids are driving me crazy. Pastor, that kid over there scratched the wall. Pastor, they messed up the carpet. Pastor, 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 pastor. I got over to my office. I was so ticked off. Righteous anger, I'm telling you. And then I realized something. That the biggest babies in the church aren't found in the nursery. Guys, I've watched Debbie keep care of our neighbor kids when she couldn't get up and go to the bathroom hardly. We baptized four of our neighbors. I've watched her over these years take care of things when she was, seriously. She got avascular necrosis in both of her knees right now. You'll never hear her complain. She's a phenomenal, I tell this and I mean this, she is the godliest person I've ever met. She keeps me in the moment. Three things we've learned from this experience. Number one, God is sufficient for everything we face in life. There's nothing you brought in this building that God cannot overcome. There's nothing you're facing that God cannot overcome. That's why I know that God is in charge that we can face an uncertain tomorrow, whatever that might be, trust me, God is sufficient to meet it. He's sufficient. Come on, our bills out of the hospital in six months were half a million bucks. We, we didn't pay the same medical bills for four years in the same year. God took care of every need. We never missed a missions gift. We never missed a tithe. We never missed a meal. God took care of every need. Number two, God gave us, go ahead bring it up if you will. God gave us a real passion for those who don't know Christ because we don't know what tomorrow will bring. Why well, put off for tomorrow what you can share with your family members and friends today? But thirdly, thirdly, about two weeks after Debbie got out of the hospital, she was just learning to walk again. She, she said, David, come here, I gotta tell you something. I was reading my Bible outside and she was reading hers in there. She said, David, God said something to me, spoke to me, shared something with me. And same thing he, he told me. I said, you first. Tell me what he told you. And then when she said it, I said, Deb, that's exactly what God laid on my heart. Here's what he said. He said, you tell my people every chance you get that we're wasting a bunch of time on stuff that simply does not matter. So guys, this morning I'm going to ask you just right where you are to bow your heads. And please, nobody, nobody leave. Let's, let's just take a moment here. I'm going to ask you just to play on the piano and the organ if you want to, and we're not going to worry about singing this morning. I just want to give you a time to respond. If you're sitting there this morning and you know that God's grabbing hold of your heart because you've got struggles, you've got things you're facing, and you know how difficult it really is, you don't know what you're going to do tomorrow. You don't know how you're going to handle it. You don't know what's going to be said. You don't know what's going on. You don't know. But God knows. God knows. Trust him. Trust him. Guys, we stepped out on that unknown many, many years ago. For the last 26 years, we've been, every day has been an unknown. Way beyond even what the doctors could do and others could do. They've been amazed that Debbie's still alive. That Kara is functioning the way she is does as well as she does. We are a blessed people. You're an amazing church. Let's not look at what we don't have. Let's take a close look at what we do have. And let's trust Him. The only way we can face an uncertain tomorrow is with the God who's already there. This morning, I'm going to invite you to come to this altar. I want to challenge you because over the next month and a half, I really want to draw us to prayer. We go into August, I'm going to preach on prayer. And I really want to bring, ask God to bring us to our knees and our face, that we would ask God what He wants to do with our lives and where He wants us to go and how He wants to deal with us and what He wants us to be. I want us to fast and pray together as a church and seek His face. And I'd like to ask you to let that begin this morning. If you've never received Christ as your personal Savior, I'd love to tell you how you can do that. If you'd like to join the church, I'd love to tell you how you can do that. But I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer. When I finish that prayer, I'm going to ask you to stand with me just a moment. As we stand, you come. Don't don't leave. Come this way. Let's kneel together as a church and start that process of saying, God, what do you want to do with us? Break us, God, and remake us in your image. Bring us to the end of ourselves, God, so that we can only trust on you. Whatever happens, God, it's okay. Father, in Jesus' name, we ask you, Lord, right now. God, the last 26 years have flown by, but they've been amazing, God, of how you've taken care of so many things. I thank you for Debbie. I thank you for how you've used her to touch people's lives. I thank you for Kara. And how, Lord, she has just been a picture of how you've used her to the Philippines and here and all over the world, different places. Her testimony. And God, I thank you most of all for Jesus. For the fact that, God, that you stamped your name and you've given us the promise that you will always be what you have been. That we can trust you. That you'll provide the footing we need. So right now, God, lead this invitation and do in our lives anything that needs to be done and bring us to our knees, to our faces, and break us and remake us in your image. In Jesus' name.